0: excited today for our special guest. We have the Coast Guard's 25th Ancient Albatross, Admiral Ray, joining us to talk about flying and his Coast Guard career. Admiral Ray is a 1981 graduate of the Coast Guard Academy. He served both afloat and aloft throughout his career. Hey, good afternoon, Admiral Ray. Excited to have you here today, sir. For our listeners that are less familiar with your career and current title as the Coast Guard Ancient Albatross, can you give us a quick background and, uh, and talk about also what that title means?
1: Roger that. So I, um, I graduated from the academy in '81 and went aboard a coast guard cutter, Cushet, and really didn't have any intentions of going to flight school per se. The um, the long commitment at the time, which is not as long as, as it is now, uh, kind of had me a little bit spooked. But uh, in the course of my first couple of years, I was exposed to coast guard operations. We had a couple of our shipmates medevac, and anyway, it was just something like, who's going to do something more? Fun than what I see these guys doing. Who's going to have more job satisfaction? So anyway, I went to flight school and and uh, served subsequently in Savannah, uh, Kodiak, Elizabeth City, Sitka at ALC uh, at Clearwater, and then at Barinka. Uh The uh, uh, and I did grad school. I was an aviation engineer, so I did grad school at Purdue and had you know a couple other rotational tours there at the senior end. But for about the first. 15 years, I was just full-on air station stuff, and, and loved every minute of it. Uh, and then the Ancient Albatross, you know, I, I came into this 2015, so I relieved uh, Rear Admiral Jake Korn. I was the Pacific Area commander uh, when I was uh, first took over as Ancient Albatross, and then relieved Rear Admiral Jake Korn, and have been doing it for the last five years or so. But in the essence, what it does is it gives me as a Senior leader who hadn't stood the duty in a number of years. Uh, although uh, you know I've, I've done what you all do with regards to signing for airplanes and, and doing all the stuff that Coast Guard aviators do. It's been a long time. So what this ancient albatross role uh, it, it forces me to take time, which is an easy force to stay connected with those that have gone before us, those those uh, Coast Guard aviators and uh, that stood the duty before you and I did. And then those that are currently staying to watch, just like you guys. And then it's, 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 I often get this also gives me uh, the opportunity to engage with young people who aspire to be aviators, uh, whether that's down at Pensacola or, or you know, at other places. And so that's thats it in a, in a nutshell. Over.
0: That sounds awesome. Six aviation careers. That's crazy. Not a lot of people can say the first 15 years of their uh, Coast Guard career.
2: Um, yeah, that's a lot of service. Thank you. i that. And, sir, the, the mentality of reaching out back to the fleet and, and impacting them, especially the young aviators or the up-and-comers, is, is really the big reason why we wanted to have you on the show. And that being said, do you have any, any memorable aviation stories from such a long and storied career?
1: Oh, I have lots of them. I to think. I tried to think through last night of what I wanted to, to share with you guys. Um, and one came to mind. Because it, it kind of has a lot of the things that Coast Guard aviation's good at, and I just happened to be on the mission that day. So back when we were doing the H three to H sixty transition at Kodiak, I was stationed at Sitka, and I had been both an H three guy and an H sixty guy, and uh, and I tr- trans and so Kodiak was um, uh, they were having troubles with their H three right before they flipped to sixty. So we went over, a few of us did for Sika to stand the duty. And uh, and because I was somewhat familiar with the train having served at Kodiak, uh, it was kind of a natural thing. So we get launched late one afternoon, uh, right before dark, on something on the other side of the Alaska Peninsula. Oh, probably about 70, 80 miles offshore of Cold Bay. And it was typical Alaska weather. So we get launched there. And it really, it, it required, you couldn't go up in the clouds because it was freezing and icing. Uh, and, uh, even with the mighty H 60, I was at that point, didn't have that much time in it. And I wasn't real fond of getting up in freezing conditions. Uh, and then, so we had to go through a mountain pass that I was familiar with. We had a C-130 that flew cover for us and they kind of found where the cloud layers were and where the freezing levels, you know, kind of what it was. They were kind of the recon scout for us. And so we ended up going through this mountain pass. So the clouds came down to the terrain. And so we had to just go up through the clouds, punch up. And thank goodness the C-130 had paved the way for us. There was a layer there where we could get VFR on top. And we go out over the uh, Bering Sea. And the C-130 found us a way to kind of, they kind of wore our lead, uh, if you will, seeing seeing our aircraft to get us down through the clouds. We did a letdown on the crab boat. And there was a young man, a pretty young guy, who got his head between the gunnel and a crab trap. and And he was seriously injured, really bad. And we had the dock with us, too. So we had the dock from Kodiak because we knew it was a bad case. Wow. And uh, and we get there, and we hoist the guy. And it wasn't too bad. It, by this time, it was dark, but it wasn't too sunny. But then it got the visibility got like dang near zero. So we kind of feel our way into Cold Bay. And uh, and meanwhile, we're working through the folks in Cold Bay. We didn't have an FOB there at the time. Uh, and, and working our local connections on HF Radio and working with the local people. And we get the life flight guys from Anchorage there about the time we land and we pass this guy off and everything turned out well. We ended up staying at the weathered end, uh, you know, like three people to Iraq. because that's kind of what it took. <laughs> uh, that's all they had. And uh, it was uh, it was just a great case. And probably it was the best case for me. Uh, about two months later, I received a letter from that young man's mother and and she gave me a description of what he was doing. And he had recovered, and I mean, it was a serious injury, and and uh, that's always been. We didn't get any awards or anything like that. It didn't didn't expect any. And I'm not crying about that. My point was, it was a great star case that included all the elements of of Coast Guard aviation, and 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 you know, and to, to know to get that direct feedback from the mom of this young person, who actually was he was his home was in New York City. It was just kind of the most memorable one of the. When I look back, it's one of the most memorable things that I have. okay
0: that that sounds like an awesome case. Yet it, it doesn't seem like a lot of people have stories that have like the the feedback at the end from the the parents or the family or, or even the individual. So uh, I know we talked about that previously on one of the podcasts um, for like the the mountain rescue. Don't always get that uh, that feedback, but that's really awesome.
1: Yeah, I found more often than not in Coast Guard SAR, you know, you deliver them to the ambulance or you deliver them to the the whatever, and and that's the last you ever see or hear from them. So that was a particularly uh, memorable case.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I heard you were, you were just in Kodiak, was it uh, last week, sir, or the week before?
1: Yeah, I went up for, uh, you know, it's part of my vice commandant duties. What I've found is uh, that, you know, I got to get out with the with the folks that are doing frontline Coast Guard work. Not that people here in headquarters aren't doing Coast Guard work, but frontline operational stuff. If I don't do that a few days every month. It's really easy to get disconnected from what's going on in the field. And I learn. A lot, of course, one of my main factors up at Kodiak was the vaccine and the, the take rate on the vaccine and how young people are doing, how they're all... Because District 17 is a really tough spot during the COVID just yes, because sir. of the restrictions on movement and other things. That's
0: why I was up there. Oh, nice. And I heard you got to fly the best uh, aircraft in the Coast Guard inventory. Is that true?
1: You know, it, it, it is. I, uh, I brought back a lot of memories. I was the all-pet engineer when we introduced 65 to kodiak so the i was the second all path that was at 865 and that was in 1988 and uh it was just so cool to fly those same places i've flown in the 65 i I'd flown around kodiak in the back of helicopters since since then because of uh you know vip and congressional delegations and things like that but to get and go out by uh Round Tiniac and, you know, uh, over across, over by, uh, Zinke. And uh, anyway, it was just neat. And to come back up over the mountains, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. That's awesome. That's Beautiful awesome. flying up there as well. Right to that. And it was calm, so you didn't get all that orographic turbulence close to the mountains. It was pretty neat. That's nice of
0: you to order a, a calm weather day. That's smart.
1: There you go.
0: There you go. We were just flying yesterday, and it was uh, very bumpy down here at Mobile before that front came through. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, some of your role as the just the, the vice commandant? So um, now that you are kind of, I mean, the senior service representative, can you talk about maybe a little bit of a non-aviation specific stuff, just like what the day-to-day looks like and how you take care of the Coast Guard?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Uh, uh, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because once you make, it, really it starts when you make flag officer. And some captain jobs, but specifically when you make flag officer, you lose. Your, uh, your right to affiliate more closely with one specialty than the others. You gotta love everybody the same. You gotta have the same interest in everything. Uh, I mean, obviously, we come with more knowledge depending on what um, field we came up in in the Coast Guard. So you have some more inherent knowledge, but I spend equal amounts of time try to on just about every Coastie that is out there. So as a vice commandant, I didn't really understand it until I got up here and was working at, at this level when I was deputy commandant for operations, just what the vice covers down on. And a lot of it is dependent upon the relationship between the commandant and the vice. And, uh, and so I've got a, a really just, I couldn't ask for a better relationship with our commandant in terms of, you know, the empowerment that he's given me to be the chief operating officer of the Coast Guard. So to, to oversimplify, it, the commandant's external facing, he's the person that's out there, you know, pressing the intent of the Coast Guard it, that is the person speaking for the service priorities, and uh, and you know, and his largely focused external and uh, you know up and out, and and you know, of course, down and in the end with regards to operations of the Coast Guard. But my job as the chief operating officer is to take that commander's intent. It, 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 it's not exactly like, but it's not that dissimilar from being the XO of the Coast Guard, quite frankly. it's to take that commander's intent and to take. You know, this is what these are my priorities, and then I try to I, I put that into action here at headquarters. So my days are filled with engagements with the various programs. From you know, yesterday I had a, a milestone meeting with the Waterways Commerce Cutter Program Office, rebuilding, recapitalizing the inland uh, fleet. This morning I had a substantive meeting with the Coast Guard Reserve folks about how do we get our reserves back up the street. I could go on and on. The point is, as advice, I kind of touch everything in the Coast Guard with a, probably a more than uh, a, a, a quite a bit of uh, impact and responsibility for the acquisition part of the Coast Guard.
2: That's awesome. That, that's a great primer. Uh, Ryan, Do you have something? Uh, yes, Admiral. Since we're mostly an aviation podcast, thought I'd ask a little bit of your thoughts on the health and the status of the aviation side of the fleet and how everything's going with us. I know the last year has been a little bit of a crazy one, uh, do you have any thoughts from your level on, on how everyone's doing?
1: Yeah, I'll start at the pointy end of the sphere. I, I think our aviators, as as all of our operators, you know, I think of, you know, our aviators, our cutter crews, our station, boat station crews, and our marine inspectors, kind of our, and there's others, but those are the primary subgroups of real operational coaches, uh, you know, out engaged in doing the mission. And I think our aviators, uh, uh, similar to the other operators. They just figured out a way to get it done. I've been to multiple air stations in the last year since while we've been fighting this COVID, and everybody's a little different. You know, if they have a, a heavy deploying mission, it's a different prospect. If they're pretty much a, you know, a, a, a B0 SAR unit uh, that takes care of the home AOR, that's a different uh, duty standing mentality and training mentality. And I think our COs uh, have done a super, and I'm and EOs and all the other senior leaders at the air stations, uh, and our, as well as all the duty standing crews, have done a great job of monitoring, knowing that perhaps we don't have the same output which we haven't had in the last year in terms of raw flight hours, but we've got to have the right amount of flight hours, the right flavor of flight hours, to to make sure that our folks are able to perform where they need to. Likewise, I'm really proud of our training command. You know, we took a knee with regards to stand trips, with regards to to T-course, our P-courses, and I was nervous because those are the backbone of keeping our folks sharp uh, from a systemic fashion. And I was really glad to see how we processed that and kind of got back on that horse, you know, uh, not too long into the COVID because we know how important it is. And having visited Mobile two or three times in the last year, I'm really proud of our training division down there, proud of you guys, uh, both in the simulator and and all the things that you're doing. There's a lot of stressors. On getting the job done, but you guys are doing that. So that's kind of on the, the human aspect of it. On the um, uh, the plant, you know, the, the aircraft side of it. I mean, we all know the story. I mean, uh, you know, we're fighting through some modernization on our fixed wing. The C twenty seven has just been harder to get modernized, missionized than any of us expected. But I just took a brief on that day before yesterday, and they're they're coming along. We're, we got the money to do what we need to do. Uh, They're coming along, and we're going to have a fine aircraft there. The Casas, you guys all know the Casas kind of have won several awards in the last few years. I think our crews are really getting good at operating that aircraft. C 130Js, I'm a huge C 130 fan, uh, have been for years. They kind of can do anything that the Coast Guard or the nation needs them to do. And I'm really happy that we're going to be pressing the Js out to barbers, you know, uh, next year. Uh, and then when you get to the helicopters, I mean, I've flown, you know, 52s, H3s, H60s, H65s, probably primarily h but a good dose of H65s. And I love, I'm a helicopter guy, true and true. Uh, and, and But the practicality is uh, that our H65 and, and our engineers have done a great job of engaging with uh, Airbus and, and all and their reach into the other manufacturers of the component, of the sub-element components. I think our engineers have done a great job of maximizing the supply chain, but that will only go so far in aircraft that's not production. So, I mean, that's just it is what it is. 60s, I think we've got a new lease on life there. We've come up, thanks to our engineers, uh, we've come up with some great, um, you know, ways ahead, whether it's sundowner or aircraft or whether it's the new hulls that we get from Sikorsky. We've got great support on the hill. So the future of that program is bright. So some people think, oh, Charlie Ray's just trying to go to the big iron, trying to go to the big iron. That's not the case at all. I'm just being practical. Uh, we are not going to be on the front end of this future vertical lift. We don't want to be on the front end of that. We want to let DOD fight through that and we'll be on the back end. And when you do the math, we're just going to have to slowly transition from one aircraft to the other. And, and, and we'll do that as we get funding, we don't have funding to do a full transition, nor would I recommend it. We'll be flying a 65s into the 30s, and, and, and we'll be doing it safely. And that's probably where I'll finish this long monologue, is uh, I have complete confidence that one thing, we will not compromise, because our COs, our ops bosses, our safety officers, and our EOs are not going to let it happen. We're not going to compromise on safety. Airworthiness will be airworthy, and we'll abide by that.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting to talk about all the transitions. It does seem like um, Brian and I were reviewing earlier, just about every airframe in the Coast Guard is going through some sort of transition. Like you said, uh, Caso, Cas Alpha to Bravo, missionizing the C-27, rolling out the J's, um, and then the the SLEP and recap for the um, the rotary wing fleet. It almost seems like tumultuous now where we've got a lot of stuff going on. Was it like that earlier in your career as you saw some of these aircraft coming online? You are talking about the 60 rollout and— uh, I believe you served for the first 65 flying. Is it similar now you think, or, or is it a little bit different in uh, 2021?
1: You know, I think some of it's still pretty similar. I remember um, when we were transitioning from 65, from H52s to 65, uh, first of all, it was a fundamental change in kind of philosophy of flight. When you were flying in a boat hull helicopter, the water was your friend, not rough water, the calm water was your friend. I mean, if you had a, a problem, the safest thing you could do was land on the water. If you were in protected water. When we started hoisting with H-65, uh, you know, that ability to fly out was always preeminent in your mind. Always. And the same thing with the H-3 and the H-60. So put that, and there's a bunch of other philosophical things and a bunch of other capability the H-65 brought to us with regards to the original kind of, uh, you know, flight management system. And uh, as we got away from steam gauges and all that with regards to the engine. And having a dual engine capability. But I'll tell you, there was some that was still the same as to what we're seeing now. I remember we had a plan for retiring H-52s and we were transitioning, you know, into H-65s and it was on schedule. Well, the H-52s had a boat and our transmissions on those things. I recall many because I was a student engineer at the time, part of it, and a qualified engineer the other part of the time. Uh, we, we, the transmissions just were not giving us the service life towards the back end of. I think we just reworked them too many times. I don't say too many times, but when you got this huge, you guys know what a big deal a gearbox change is. Yes, sir. So we do a big gearbox change, we go out and run it up and it would look okay. Then you put the vibe gear on it and you go flying and you could never get it to vibe right. And then it would get hot. And so the 52s had a boat. And, uh, and likewise, uh, and the 65, the other thing about that aircraft uh, was, you know, it was not a mil-spec aircraft. It, it was not a one that was, you know, originally intended. And so there were a lot of growing pains with that. And the Lycoming engines, don't get me started on that. That was a, that was really a tough situation. So, but then the H 60, and I give a lot of credit to to, at that time, Lieutenant Commander John Curry. He was our person on the program office working with the Navy. And that's why I'm such a big advocate of getting on the back end of DOD acquisitions. Let them fight through the hard stuff. That's exactly what we did with the J Model H-60s. And I was at Elizabeth City when we first started standing duty in them. And it was, I mean, we had our troubles. But I'm going to tell you, it was night and day compared to when we transitioned uh, to the 65s because we were on the back end of a DOD contract. How on that? Oh.
0: No, that's that's great. Yeah, it does sound like... uh... It, maybe this has been a theme throughout the coast guard it's interesting um like personally just growing up and becoming a uh, an o4 and, and continuing through the ranks you just maybe you get to see more and more and it, it looks more chaotic but it's maybe the leaders were kind of uh, hiding how chaotic it was all along so that's uh that's great perspective
1: there's been a couple of constants, and it's just the way it is in the service we see it i see it now you know our icebreaker fleet everybody's all about icebreakers now well the coast guard's been ringing the bell trying to get more icebreakers for several years, and it's it's just not until you got to build a, an advocacy for it. And, and and unfortunately, you have to be right near the edge of, because there's so many competing priorities, oftentimes you have to be right on the edge of uh, mission failure before you can get, you know, the resources to recap. And uh, and that's what we did with our older helicopters, H-52s. We got right to the limit with them uh, before it was time to recap, and the same with the H-3s. Can you talk about maybe a, an
0: interesting experience? Uh, so you did a lot of time, sir, like uh, sand and duty. What about uh, in the command and control function? Can you talk about an interesting SAR case that maybe uh, one of your crews did at Brankin uh, or Clearwater, um, where maybe you're taking uh, CO calls or I think you were an EO. Were you an ops as well, or you were a XO CO?
1: No, I was straight EO. Yeah, I never, and I only had the one CO ride. I got uh, uh, promoted out of Clearwater. I was fully expecting to go and uh, and, and be, uh, you know, a commander anyway. But that's, that's anyway. So that's how that worked out. But I was, you know, it was interesting because I recall from when I went up to Sitka as the engineering officer, Captain Jimmy Ng, who was a famous Coast Guard helicopter pilot uh, and just a really tremendous Alaska pilot. He said, Charlie, you know, when I showed up, the, oh, he said, you're part of the command cadre. And when we do things, you know, this is I'm going to be counting on you. It was kind of a defining moment in my career, and uh, what I remember many times are aircraft that were stranded in places, and yeah. uh, and there were judgment calls, and it's not all black and white. If you went straight by the book, we'd have aircraft sitting everywhere, you know, and uh, and so it, it, it when it came to what was you know uh, flight safety issues, and and when you you know kind of making judgment calls, stuff that wasn't per se classified. There's a lot of work in that. I found over the years, those are you know our, our folks do a good job of uh, putting on the ground when they uh, know that they they couldn't according to the emergency procedures, and and I'm very thankful for that. And then when you start trying to patch things back up to get them back to home station, there's a judgment call with regards to what's safe to do out in the field, what's safe to try and get it back. So that whole area of one time flights you guys are familiar with. I spent a lot of my life as a younger co working on making decisions on one-time flights.
0: That, that's interesting. That's definitely like the, uh, that sounds like the EO perspective on uh, giving recommendations and, and approving those one-time flights. That's that's really interesting.
1: You know, as a CO and, and as, as working in that range, i found that more often than not, our aircraft commanders, I can't think of just a couple, three times I would redirect aircraft commanders. And we were a little less, um, you know, 20 years ago, we were a little less uh, processed when it came to the flight surgeons role. So aircraft commanders had more uh, discretion and generally that worked out pretty good. Um, but uh, it, it, I'm not, I'm a fan of where we are now. I think uh, so, uh, it, making some of these choices based on uh, flight surgeon input is, is really the, the rational way to go, but we just didn't, we weren't as refined I'll say 20 years ago. And uh, so there was a few times I had to wave people off on the risk versus gain, because as you know, more often than not, uh, uh, aircraft commanders are they they find a way to that they can uh, you know figure out a way to get the mission done. And, and there was a few times when maybe I added some more thought to the risk versus gain calculus, but not very often. I was pretty not pretty. I was very proud and, and remain proud of the ability to calculate that that our aircraft commanders have.
2: Admiral, you mentioned becoming a little bit more refined with regard to the flight surgeons. Are there any other ways that you think that Coast Guard aviation has become more refined or improved over the years?
1: Oh yeah, I think we've I, we've we've literally become a lot more professional. Some of it's because of the complexity of the equipment we operate. Some of it's because of some of the missions we've taken on. Uh, but you know, we literally were a, uh, and I'm not saying this. I don't want to look back and say those were the days, but there, we literally were a, you know, kind of a race to the aircraft, get in and brief on guard. Uh, you know, as, or, or, you know, brief on 381 one eight used to be the common frequency. And, uh, and so, uh, I mean, literally that was that. I mean, we did a brief turnover uh, as we assumed the duty, but it was not nearly as sophisticated as yeah, that. We didn't have the tools. We didn't have the weather forecasted tools. We didn't have the, the weather radar picture, you know, the H 52s didn't even have a radar. And, uh, my point is we were a lot less sophisticated. But on the other hand, I think, uh, how we mitigated that risk was people kind of stayed in the aircraft for a longer time. And they, and we had less other things going on. And so you had that trade off of, uh, of, more highly experienced. And when I first came into service, probably in the wardroom I was at in Savannah, of our wardrooms were prior Vietnam helicopter pilots. So these guys had experience like you read about. And uh, so if you understand what I'm saying, there's a little difference. So I am a huge fan of where we are now, uh, of of more regimented kind of risk versus gain analysis, a more methodical process to kind of getting ready to launch when it comes to medical emergencies. I think we've got the checks and balances right when it comes to our deploying crews. I'm a big fan. We, we are where we need to be, and we're always looking for ways to do it better. But that was, you know, that was 20 years ago.
0: So comparing 20 years ago from today kind of leads naturally to uh, where do you think the Coast Guard will be in, uh, in 10 years? Talking about maybe the culture of Coast Guard aviation. And uh, we've kind of touched on the airframes a little bit, but where do you see the Coast Guard in 10 years?
1: You know, it's, it's a great question. I think our value proposition to the nation, we've got specific value proposition in each of the regional areas of the country. I mean, we'll be doing local search and rescue up in the Great Lakes and every part of the country uh, for forever. But I think our unique value proposition, as I've kind of looked at this in the last few years, is our ability to surge and surge to where the nation needs us to operate. Uh, our ability in the last few hurricane seasons uh, to float to the Gulf Coast and do it safely, uh, you know, we've assumed some risk at the northern stations but with regards to manpower and airframes. Our ability to surge to Arctic Shield in the summer and allows Kodiak to, you know, stand ready crews in four different locations. Uh, our ability to surge to where the nation needs us, I think, will increasingly become the stock and trade of the Coast Guard. And, and so, uh, for that reason, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan also looking forward of common aircraft types. You know, uh, I think if I was going to start from scratch for the Coast Guard right now, I'm not going to, but if I was going to start from scratch, I'd have a common fixed wing and a common helicopter. And, uh, and we would, you know, we'd work that way so I could surge anywhere and, uh, and fall in on the, the logistics, the parts supply, the trained air crews, et cetera. So I, I see this as a surge, and I, and I also see the Coast Guard will continue to pick up niche aviation missions. I think the rotor Wing Air Intercept in the National Capital Region, certainly a source of pride for us. The airborne use of force, a source of pride for the service, and I don't know what the next thing will be, but it'll be something like that. And then, um, you know, the master of the obvious here, I think we will continue to grow, maybe not with rated aviators, but partially with rated aviators. We'll continue to grow in the unmanned systems, and those will increasingly become a part of the, the you know, kind of the, the portfolio, if you will. So to answer your question, i fast forward 10 years. There will be, you know, less variation in aircraft types, uh, a more, you know, surging to wherever the nation needs us. will be, be standard operating procedures. Everybody will be prepared to do it, and we will have increasingly a mix of the UAS, and one thing that will never change, I don't is the power of the shipboard helicopter team. We're going to be building out, as you all know, tremendous fleet of cutters, offshore patrol cutters, polar security cutters, national security cutters, and and I think, you know, there ought to be a helicopter on every one of those things, or, or pretty close to them. Uh, I think that, that uh, the power of that shipboard helicopter team, we've seen it over and over again in our services history. And we, it just gives us reach that uh, really makes what we do unique.
0: Yeah, as a sixty-five pilot admiral, that uh, talking about putting sixties on the back of boats and uh, putting folding tails—that uh, couldn't make me more excited.
1: You know, the, it's interesting. The uh, you know when we got the, you guys probably remember this. You you don't remember it, but but trust me, it was there. You know, we got we had blade hotel tail photo of the sixties until about what two thousand, I think. I was the EO at Clearwater. And what happens is we never, we didn't have any ships that could take the H-60s per se. Uh, and that wasn't part of our operational requirements, but the maintenance requirements to maintain all that folding equipment and the availability of the spindles that folded was just drove us to go into, you know, lock down uh, rotor heads and tails. And now uh, that was just, that made good sense at the time, but here we are kind of, you know, retrograding, if you will, and it's entirely appropriate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like the cutter the cutter forces are a little more uh, or headed to be a little more equipped to handle the 60s. And, and like you said, I think it is the right tool for the job uh, as much as that'll pain some of our listeners and my friends to uh, say the 60s <laughs> better than the 65. Admiral, we wanted to ask, uh, what piece of aviation advice have you received over the years has proven to be most valuable to you?
1: I think um, you need to always, I think, you know, it, one of the things that I stress for folks that are like second or third tours, you're getting really good at what you're doing. I mean, you are really getting at the top of your game. And uh, and you learned a lot. As, as, as you were coming up through the, the qualification, the upgrade syllabus, uh, I think you had a lot of, you know, people kind of watching along the way and giving you guidance. What I've found is that uh, I think um, – Uh, So it starts now. It's about the third tour, second, late second, early third tour of aviation. You're so darn good at what you're doing. You kind of lose some of the paranoia that's helpful uh, if you're going to maintain, be a Coast Guard aviator. By that, I mean, you know, if something, you you just always got to be thinking about what bad could happen. You never overestimate your capabilities. And I think that requires a little bit. I found when I was in y'all's shoes, about Year three, old four, uh, I was on this sine curve. So I'd be at the top of my game, and I thought, man, I can do anything to stage sixty-five. I can make this thing dance, and and there's no hoist I can't do. There's no place I can't fly. And then I would have some, you know, kind of really scary incident. Uh, uh, and I'm not saying I was out flat hat. I'm just saying you get into operational situations, and you your confidence exceeds. Uh, maybe your capabilities or, you know, the conditions, and I'd get the no-kidding crap scared out of me. And that would not me. I'd, I'd get back to basics. And I would, you know, and I'd keep working. And so I found that if I could maintain myself thinking I'm getting a little too sure of myself. I remember one time I launched, uh, we launched north of ADAC. There was a Navy base at ADAC back when I was in Al-Pet, And uh And and the XO said, hey, you guys think you we weren't scheduled for a port call? The said, hey, you guys think you can go get the mail? I said, sure, XO, we'll go get the mail. And uh, and so uh, we launched about 70 miles north of ADAC. And it was rough, but it's always rough. Experience. And uh, it was rough and it was snotty. Well, between there and ADAC, it got really snotty. I mean, it was hurricane. And I looked at my buddy and I said, we are en route to get the mail. I said, <laughs> maybe, we're a little, maybe we're getting a little too confident in ourselves here. So, and I've had a lot of moments like that. So that's, that's one thing I would encourage everybody to just take on board. If you think you're the best there is, you probably are, but you can be humbled like anybody. And I would take that on board and to try and tamp yourself down a little bit, if you will. Uh, Um, anyway, that's kind of my two cents on that.
0: No, that's great advice. Um, I know uh, your role. You kind of talked about uh, being super interested in Coast Guard aviation, kind of from start to finish. Any advice for uh, like future aviators or folks trying to get into flight school?
1: Well, I think um, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, it's kind of the, the, the flip side, the beginning of what I was just talking about. You know, uh, I think right now, if you're physically qualified uh, and you you know you've shown competence operationally, or even in some cases, because I think we we sent about 20 aviators from the academy straight to flight school. So, if you've shown some confidence and ability to learn and all that, you'll probably get a shot at aviation. Uh, what I what I tell uh, folks is, uh, you got to learn. So, uh, training command is one thing, you know. You can see, you, we all know, the Navy knows how to train, aviators. and if you, if you if you abide by their program, then then you will get wings. What I've told young folks coming up through the pipeline, if you want to succeed. You got to learn all the things that pertain to aviation. I mean, you got to be a student of aviation, and all, that's your main thing in life until you make aircraft commander, and it remains that. But especially until you make aircraft commander, and that's the goal: is to make aircraft commander. And uh, and I think um, you know, so you got to be a student of the weather in the area that you're serving. In. You've got to be a no kidding, really curious, interested. You know uh, about the components of the aircraft and what makes it go. You got whether you're in aviation engineering or not, you'll be welcome if you're asking good questions on any hangar deck in the Coast Guard. You got to be interested in that. You got to know without fail 3710 and what your left and right limits are. What I used to tell young pilots when I was CEO, I would kind of, for demonstration effects, I'd bring the manuals that control our lives. You know, whether it's the the, the um, 3710 or the you know, the maintenance management manual or whatever the manuals that control how you operate. And I'd say, if you have these things on you like armor and you abide by these, then, then you have, A, a chance of getting the mission done, B, a chance that if you don't get it done, then, you know, everybody knows you were trying everything you can. And C, if you mess up or if you have a malfunction, I know that you weren't just out there cowboying it up. You were following the rules. So I think just being a really intense student of aviation, and not just aviation in general, but Coast Guard aviation, Coast Guard operational aviation, is what I tell people if they want to succeed.
2: That was a great answer, Admiral, absolutely. And Admiral, thank you so much. That's a truly inspiring answer to both of those questions. Uh, I don't think that we'll be able to top that here on our end, but are there any other messages for the fleet or parting shots that you'd like to uh, send out there and out to all the listeners and into the the fleet pilots out there.
1: Well, one of the questions that y'all had uh, for me was uh, about training, and you're in the training business, and all uh, It made me, it made me recall. I think I mean, I really take a lot of pride in our training kind of process for Coast Guard aviation. I mean the the authority that we give uh, aircraft commanders, the authority that we give deployed. Shipboard aircraft commanders, the authority that we give flight mechanics that are on the road, or you know, two parts, one part aviation maintenance person, one part uh, flight mechanic, responsible as part of the air crew for getting the job done. The responsibility we give uh, uh, ASTs when they unhook from the harness to go down and uh, you know and triage on the deck. It's just an incredible amount of responsibility and authority. So our training is super important, and and I just it behooves all of us, and I know that we don't ever take shortcuts, but I just, I was thinking back through the times when I'd uh, been exposed to people on their first go-round, on their first, you know, so they got their syllabus signed off yesterday, and then tomorrow they're, you know, they're out uh, leading uh, an intense mission. I just think that is a—it's uh, something to really take on board, both whether you're the trainer or signer, or whether you're the trainee. I was reminded of that because I'm, I'm Uh, One of my guys who was the IP at my first unit, who signed me off on my, he's coming to visit next week. And the crew, my team, front office uh, team said, hey, do you mind if he stops by the sea? I said, no, I don't mind. I I came as close as I've come uh, to to perhaps not finishing a flight when I was with him one time. So he took me out one night on duty and signed me off on my aircraft commander check ride. Last check ride, I was aircraft commander in age 52. I couldn't have been more proud. And he said, Charlie, if we get a case tonight, I want you to sit in the right seat. And so, Roger that. So, we did. And it was a shrimp boat taking on water, and it was snotty. And and the shrimp boat couldn't go on the course. We needed him going for optimum hoisting, heading. And we ended up doing an indirect pump delivery. During the course of the pump delivery, uh, uh, the hoist cable got a loop in it, got wrapped around the bow of the shrimp boat that was pitching. And it jerked the helicopter sideways, and it was uh, – it could have been very easy a six five oh five incident, but I don't know that we sheared or the horse cable parted at the at the hoist. Uh, nonetheless, I'm here with you today. So my point is is that you know that was uh, that was a legit star case, and uh, and the you know the night before that I hadn't been signed off to uh, execute, and so uh, it was uh, it's that's the importance of our training. It is and it's good It's the quality of our training as well.
2: Captain Holzer here uh, mentions Admiral that aggressive safe training saves lives, and that what you just said seems to embody that quite a bit.
1: It really is, and they're the best. And you guys are IPs. You know what I'm talking about. I, uh, I've had uh, great IPs before, and not so great IPs, and and the ones that really understand the aircraft and know how to to train aggressively without getting you past your limits. Without getting, if you're hoisting a boat, without getting them past their limits, without getting themselves where they can't salvage you, uh, that is, um, that is a, uh, a real skill. And so, uh, at any rate, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of how we go about that. Yeah. So, um, what else is, uh, what else is on y'all's mind?
0: I don't know. Um, we're, I mean, uh, I mean, it's not yet end of the work day, but, uh, what's your favorite beer? Uh, i been told you do have a favorite.
1: You know, yeah, I, uh, uh, that migrates depending on where I'm stationed. But right now in D.C., yeah. I found this uh, uh, Devil's Backbone is a brewery here in Virginia, and it's got an eight point buck, is the name of it. Oh, found nice that to be about the IPA, about the right hoppiness, the right everything, just what I like. So uh, that's a Friday night uh, pleasure.
0: All right, we'll have to try that. You said uh eight point buck IPA?
1: Eight point buck, yeah, just like it sounds, just like if you were going hunting, right, that would be I'll, a good thing to find, right?
0: I'll hit you up next time in uh, I'm in DC, sir. So maybe we can have one. There
1: you go, there you go. Be glad to do it. Somebody asked me about the um, about the you know kind of the health of the the Coast Guard fleet, and uh, I mean with regards to the young folks, and you know, and what's uh, moving forward. I, I think. I got you know I think about this quite a bit. I was down in Pensacola the other day, unfortunately for the yes, sir. the horribly sad but very necessary memorial service to Lieutenant JG Garrett, and uh, and I couldn't believe that how many uh, two things uh, that that I remarked upon. One was how many student naval aviators we have in Pensacola right now. So how we're building up the the ward rooms and the duty standing crew, and then the diversity of the crews that I was seeing that we just uh, previously, I had not uh, witnessed that, unfortunately. And so, you know, I went around and talked to them. So that was different, right? More of them than I'd ever seen at Mobile. Uh, different, you know, different backgrounds, different ethnicities So that was different. But I'll tell you what was the same. It was they were just as motivated as uh, Charlie Ray in 1983 when I was there. And it was, uh, you know, they just wanted to get out and fly Coast Guard aircraft do Coast Guard missions. Uh, they wanted uh, so i was so it was motivating for me i don't know that i did a darn thing for them but it was super motivating for me uh, uh to come back to dc and and think about getting the tools in the hands that they need because they just they want to be out there standing the duty and uh and and doing what we do better than anybody else in the world and uh and it was just uh, i don't know it was real hard so as much as some things change some things never change And I would expect uh, that that is the case uh, and will continue to be the case because of the great mission and the great uh, brotherhood and sisterhood we have at Coast Guard Aviation. You know, kind of this storytelling stuff, I don't know that my stories will motivate anybody, but...
2: They're pretty incredible, Admiral.
1: Your uh, um, approach to this, in today's age of technology-driven largely, there's still a lot of human aspect in Coast Guard operations, and I see this everywhere I go whether it's the surfmen out there, that is a human endeavor to have that fortitude and skill. Uh, the, the complex law enforcement missions that our cutter crews do, the uh, the engaged a way that our marine inspectors have to engage with industry and make these hard calls on who, who's okay to go and who's not. And then, uh, last but certainly not least, our air crews factoring in weather, uh, material conditions, the aircraft conditions, the crew, and distances and fuel stops and it is uh it is a source of tremendous pride for the nation uh what we're able to do and, and, and you all are a source of pride for me so enjoy what you're doing it is it is a uh, it is work worth doing absolutely thank you
2: thank you very much admiral
1: Dale Captain Holzer i said a howdy. absolutely we'll see you around thank thanks you admiral. Much, appreciate admiral. the time all right y'all take care